Hello, and welcome to the Space Coast Pet Podcast, the podcast for pets and the people who love them. Now, here's your host, veterinarian Dr. Roger Welton. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Space Coast Pet Podcast. I am your host, practicing veterinarian Dr. Roger Welton, aka Dr. Roger. Happy Thursday to you, everyone. We have a very, very, very relevant topic today to discuss gastrointestinal health in dogs and cats. A big proportion of my appointments are related to GI disturbance. It is amazing how many dogs and cats have chronic GI disturbance, and it is so important to keep the gut healthy. 70 plus percent of the immune system of the body of dogs and cats resides in the gastrointestinal tract. So there are a lot of collateral ill effects that happen from an unhealthy gut. So stay tuned. We do have listener email today, a very good one from a listener named Emily. Emily did not say where she is from. Oh, she did. It's in the body of the email. It's a really cool one, folks. This is a Anyway, I'll just get right to it. (laughs) Hi, Dr. Roger. Thank you so much for your podcast. The information you share is always helpful and relevant to issues pet owners face on a daily basis. I worked as a veterinary assistant for 15 years and now own a pet care business near St. Louis, Missouri. My team and I care for thousands of pets each year, providing pet sitting for many types of pets in the pet's home when owners are away and daily dog walking. The information you share comes up quite often in conversations with pet owners. It has been about seven years since I worked in an animal hospital, and I'm amazed at how much veterinary medicine has improved and changed since then. I have a wonderful relationship with a local veterinarian and have brought my question to her. She's very busy, as many veterinarians are, and has not had a chance to answer this time. Canned cat food, canned cat food, exclamation point. Clients that feel their cats, that feed their cats canned cat food have always instructed us to leave the food out for them to finish after we leave due to the cats being quote-unquote shy and not eating while we are there. We usually visit cats one to two times per day and stay 20 to 30 minutes each visit. We have done as they instructed with no problem for the last five years until now. New younger clients with two cats. She takes excellent care of her cats. She requested three visits per day because of their feeding schedule. She left specific instructions on how to warm up the food, offer it to her cats, and take away remaining food to keep them from getting sick by eating it later when it's spoiled four hours later. One of the cats did not eat on the second visit, so I left the food out for her to eat. That This was my mistake, and I've apologized many times for not following the instructions she left. The client was furious that we left food out for the cat. Her money was refunded due to our failure to follow her instructions. Going forward with clients that feed their cats canned food, what would you recommend our protocol be? Should we recommend not feeding canned food and stick to dry food while they are away if the cat tends to hide from us and not eat while we are there? We have many clients this would affect, which is why I wanted to get a veterinarian's opinion prior to making the change. I tried searching in different forums but haven't seen this subject discussed anywhere. Thank you so much for everything you do. Emily, Emily, great question. First off, thank you for your 15 years of service in the industry. Veterinary assistant, veterinary technicians, just hard work. Um, You know, 15 years, that's a pretty, pretty healthy, long career. The body breaks down from the restraint and just the physicality of of the work. And I'm so glad you found another avenue to uh, make a living and and continue to help pets. I love my at-home pet sitter. 
She actually doesn't uh, do my dogs. I um, I have ducks, and the ducks need to be let out in the morning. They go out and play in my lake all day. I live on a lake, and then they come in at night to avoid predators in an enclosure, and um, they, it's, it's like clockwork. We let them out. They play all day. They come in to be fed before sundown, but somebody needs to be here to do that. We, we don't want, want them left out at night when predators can get at them. So um, love my pet sitter. have a great relationship with her. My dogs stay at a place called Dogtopia, which is like, a, it's amazing. They they uh, not only get to board in an amazing facility, but they get to play uh, with dogs all day long from uh, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. And we can watch them on the webcam as they play wherever we are uh, through, our, through their app. Anyway, but what you do is amazing. Um, there are some dogs that even don't do well in that environment uh, because they're just really shy or nervous, high stress, whatever. So the at-home pet sitters are, are invaluable. To your question, um, I, I think you, you – okay, two, two ways to look at this. Okay, you didn't do the right thing because you didn't follow the pet owner's instructions, but from a health standpoint, you did the right thing because if you take up the food and the cat doesn't eat, well, let's say that happens again and then happens again, here's the problem you run into. Cats that don't eat, and you'll probably remember this from your veterinary assistant days – they, they literally can get fatty liver syndrome. So cats are not well adapted to utilizing body fat for energy during times of, I don't want to say starvation, but during times of negative calorie balance. So they're burning more calories than they're taking in when they don't eat. Um, and as a result, some cats can develop fatty liver syndrome. It's, it's known officially as hepatic lipidosis, and it makes cats very sick. The other thing is that, yeah, so, so that's a problem you run into. If you're, if, if you're not leaving the food down and they're shy um, and, you know, they don't eat because you're picking it up, that happens successive times. In one day of not eating, a cat can get hepatic lipidosis. I've seen it happen in one day. So kind of playing with fire by denying them food like that. So I think from a health standpoint, you did the right thing by leaving it down. Why she warms the food, you know, that to me is probably why it's spoiled. Canned food should not spoil like that. It should not spoil that quickly. Um, I I don't know why she's resorting to warming it. It's not necessary. In fact, you know, the the canned food is is already, it's already cooked. You can leave it at room temperature because, you know, cans are sealed and don't need to be refrigerated. But I, I don't agree with the warming of the food because that's going to increase its tendency to spoil. So, okay, they take great care of their cats, but they're just doing stuff that's not necessary. And honestly, my policy, if I were you, would be that I don't think making going to dry food only is going to be a solution because some cats are very finicky. And then you run into the not eating problem and possible hepatic lipidosis. Um, I think that you should have them uh, sign a waiver basically stating that if your cat doesn't eat and this is what you want me to do and not leave the food out, and then if we have successive, you have it drawn up by, you know, a proper attorney. I'm just going to tell you like what should go in it is that, you know, a cat not eating for an extended period of time can lead to fatty liver syndrome, which is a dangerous condition. If you do not want me to leave the food out, please understand you assume this risk and have them sign it. Um, and that way you're seeing to the instructions of the owner, but protecting yourself from the fact that, you know, that cat doesn't eat for 24 hours because of their instructions. Well, you know, this could happen and I warned you about it. 
Um, so, so I'm with you for the last five years. Leave the food out. It's not likely going to spoil. The majority of the cats are going to go to their food. Um, I would just keep doing what you've been doing for those, you know, uh, for those clients that are that specific and want that food picked up. Explain the risks of hepatic lipidosis and say, and if you're willing to assume that risk, please sign this and, you know, we'll do it. So that's my advice to you, Emily. But uh, thank you so much for your contribution. Great question. Great service you provide. Just awesome vibes I'm getting from your email. Um, so on to GI health, ladies and gentlemen. So GI health, God, I, how many diarrhea and vomiting cases do I see a day? Oh, I'd say probably six cases a day, like in my on a, on a full day schedule. If it's the weekend where I work half a day, um, I see cases from like uh, 8 a.m. to 1 o'clock. Um, I see more because people have parties on Friday nights and dogs time tend to get into things uh, during during parties that you know people are partying a little bit they're not paying attention and thing you know maybe some knucklehead is feeding the dog some uh, you know chips and queso <laughs> and uh, um, makes makes them sick so that that percentage even goes up on, on Saturdays but you know there's a lot of GI disease in in dogs and cats and you know, not it's not always a case of dietary indiscretion. We legitimately see irritable bowel syndrome. We legitimately see um, inflammatory bowel disease. We see a lot of inflammatory bowel disease in cats, and we're seeing increasing uh, uh, percentages of inflama- inflammatory bowel disease in dogs, and certainly irritable bowel as well. Why is there an uptick? Well, cats, I think, just are prone to it in general they you know a lot of a lot of the cats we see are you know just mutt cats we call them domestic short hair or domestic medium hair or domestic long hair that's that's our name for mutt cats um they're they they're usually rescued or you know found you know stray or or i would say the majority of people aren't going out and buying cats they're so readily available everywhere to adopt um Pure breed cats I see occasionally, but um, the bottom line is that where, where do these cats come from, the ones that are just adopted? They're, they come from, you know, very often very inbred colonies, especially here in Florida, in places like Florida where there's, you know, a lot of conservation land and, and just, just you know, a climate that facilitates stray animals, unfortunately. Um, and and there's, there's, there's these colonies where, you know, the genetics are just not getting mixed up and... You got all kinds of breeding going on, and it's with, you know, brothers, sisters, cousins, whatever, <laughs> and that doesn't that doesn't, you know, portend good, good, uh, good genetics because inbreeding is bad. Well, on the on the canine side, you know, the 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 backyard breeder situation gets ever worse year in year out. Now you got the designer breeds that are not even official breeds, like the golden doodles, the labradoodles, and the oh my god. I talked about last week about the mini Bernadoodle. It's a, a, a standard poodle Bernese mountain dog cross that was bred down through successive generations to be a 35-pound dog. Um, can't imagine the amount of inbreeding that went into creating that. So, you know, what, what, what does all this bad breeding do? It, it facilitates inherited problems uh, because those recessive genetics that are normally hidden when genetics are mis- mixed up are, are becoming what's called homozygous, meaning they're getting, they're finding friends in like individuals that are that are related, and so those double recessives cause all kinds of disease, and and one of them, chief among them, is, is GI disease. 
So the difference between irritable bowel syndrome is just a you know, real sensitive gut, major sensitivities to certain proteins, certain, certain food items. Inflammatory bowel disease is actual autoimmune disease where, you know, the in, in response to certain proteins or protein in general or other food items, the gut actually gets infiltrated by the body's own immune system. And so in, on the people side, you really see ulcerative colitis. We see Crohn's disease and a you know, whole myriad of other things. In cats, we see proximal inflammatory bowel disease. So these cats will vomit undigested food chronically. And in dogs, we commonly see ulcerative colitis or what's called eosinophilic uh, aneuritis colitis. Uh, we also see a condition called lymphangiectasia. Um, and, uh, you know, there's other much, much, uh, like I would say, less common ones down, down, down the pike there. But, yeah, it, we have gut problems all the time. So I'm not just talking about simple dietary indiscretion. But dietary indiscretion can get really out of hand because especially in the case of, I don't know if this applies to cats too, but, but, but more so in dogs, they get a troubled gut and that thing starts to snowball. They can get a condition called pancreatitis. The pancreas lives along the upper third of the small intestine. So what happens to the small intestine commonly can affect the pancreas negatively and vice versa, by the way. But you have, uh, you know, a gut problem happening in the proximal third of the gut and it goes on for long enough. Oh boy, we we now have pancreatitis, and, and now we're hospitalizing that patient. So, what can we do to facilitate the GI health of all of these patients, the ones that normally have a healthy gut but are prone to dietary indiscretion? <clears throat> Labrador retrievers, <laughs> great example. My dog. Oh my God, Stella has eaten. Uh, I could sit here and talk for a half hour about the crazy things that she's eaten in her short four year life. Um, but uh, no, I mean, labs aren't the only animals prone to dietary indiscretion. Cats are a little bit better about that. They like to, to eat foreign bodies, like linear foreign bodies that can get stuck in their gut sometimes. But, you know, they're not, they're not necessarily tipping over a, a trash can and eating, you know, all kinds of disgustingness <laughs> like dogs do. So, so how do you facilitate a healthy gut, even in the dietary indiscretion guys, um, that can help them not spiral into a pancreatitis or, you know, hemorrhagic gastroenteritis that's going to get them hospitalized. Well, there's good ways to do that. So first off, let's be very clear that dogs and to some degree cats are not pure carnivores. Um, dogs, as we selectively bred them away from the wolf, became more omnivorous. They need other nutrients other than protein in their guts. So let's let's please lose the notion that they're just really domesticated wolves. They are not. They are very different. Their genome differs by 0.2%. That doesn't sound like a whole lot, but understand that we differ from chimpanzees, purported to be our closest ancestral cousin, evolutionary-wise, by 0.8%, right? So they differ from wolves by 0.2%. That's a lot. So by, by crossbreeding them and selectively breeding them and having them live with us and share our diets, we turn them more into us. Are they like us completely? No, absolutely not. There's differences. But let's acknowledge the fact they're not wolves. So these like ultra high protein diets, the grain freeze, don't do them. I see more diarrhea on these diets and fat animals, by the way, than on any other diets. I hate grain free, high protein diets. I'm gonna say that again. I hate grain free. <laughs> high protein diets. 
Your dog is going to probably have a nasty gut. It's going to have bad flatulence and want, want to make you leave your home. <laughs> and and the grain-free uh, reality is that to make up for those grains, they got to add on all kinds of crap that makes your dog fat, mostly sugary stuff. So you're not feeding your dog in, in a positive, healthy way in any way, shape, or form by going grain-free. Now, there are circumstances where we legitimately have to go grain-free. If there's legitimate food allergies that we want to rule out, yes, grain-free definitely applies. Grain allergies are low on the spectrum as far as the causative agents of food allergies, but, you know, a couple of them crack the top 10, and so we have to acknowledge that, yes, there are legitimate rare but but out there grain allergies but but going with those diets isn't the way to go let your veterinarian recommend a hypoallergenic grain-free diet on a prescription level that's the right way to go so number one <laughs> no grain-free ultra high protein diets um there's one company who shall not be named because i don't need a lawsuit but they actually have a commercial and and they have a wolf that transforms into a domestic dog you know like it 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 does this like camera trick and they say something like channel your dog's inner wolf it's so stupid great advertising people fall for it the diet's expensive as heck and these dogs are fat and you know have bad gut health so you want a good good high quality diet you want a diet that and I'm going to go through the three criteria that is going to be AFCO certified. That's the uh, American Association of Feed Control Officials voluntary participation that proves that they're meeting minimum standards of quality control. They go inspect the facility, stuff like that. I've talked about this before. I'm not going to harp on it too much. We have more to talk about. Number two, you want to make sure that they, they conduct feeding trials that are publicly available that prove their claims on their label. And number three, they should have at least one veterinary clinical nutritionist on staff overseeing the formulation and production of pet foods. A veterinary clinical nutritionist is a veterinarian like me, but also has a PhD in nutrition. If it's just a veterinarian, not good enough. I can't make pet food. You don't want me making your pet food. You want me recommending it, <laughs> but not making it. So, you want a veterinary clinical nutritionist. The best company that I know, I'm not going to say it, I'm not going to be a you know cheerleader for any one company, has three, three veterinary clinical nutritionists, but they should have at least one. Okay, so that's a good start. What else can we do? Well, look at the condition of your pet stool every now and then. Um, you know, you want it to be consistent in color. You want it to have that sort of Tootsie Roll kind of shape. You want it to be formed. You don't want to see mucus on it. You don't want to see blood in it. Um, you don't want it to be consistently loose. Now, my knucklehead Labrador retriever, she gets into something on a daily basis. And by virtue of that, maybe once a week or twice a week, she's got a loose stool. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like every day there's a coating of mucus on that stool or it starts off normal consistency but kind of tapers off to um, yeah, more like soft serve ice cream, gelatinous. Um, that's not good. All right? That should not happen. That tells us that there's some large bowel inflammation and we need to address that. So the first thing I would do is choose a high-quality probiotic. Now, there's a gazillion probiotics out there on the market. Probiotics are uh, basically 
strains of bacteria that are essential for optimal digestion. Uh, they are n absolutely necessary in the gut. The human microbiome, we call the bacterial environment of the gut that is essential for digestion, the good bacteria, so to speak, we call it the microbiome. The microbiome of a human is so huge and so vast that if you actually quantify it, if you actually quantify it, it is uh, it, it, it makes up of, uh, two kilograms. Two kilograms translates to almost five pounds. So the bacteria in your gut weigh five pounds. That's insane, right? Um, and so early on in, in the medical practice of probiotics, which spilled over into the hum uh, veterinary side, um, you know, we were recommendations for probiotics were being made, and, and they did cause improvement for sure. Because if you have a gut that tends towards being irritable, or like my knucklehead lab is prone to dietary indiscretion and then some loose stools, um, a regular inoculation of good bacteria is going to help during times when the gut is, is, is trying to shift towards bad bacterial proliferation. And that's, that's where all of this comes from, is that, you know, that, that bacterial balance changes. And so that's why very often for diarrhea, vomiting, name your gut problem, an antibiotic is an absolute necessity in most cases to fix it because you have to kill that bad bacteria and then let the good bacteria start to take hold again. So probiotic, I mean, even if you have a, a dog or cat with a healthy gut and, and we're generally good all the time, I think everybody, humans, dogs, cats, everybody should be on a probiotic. But here's the important, important takeaway. The probiotic should not be in the millions. It should be in the billions. And so on the human side... Uh, this 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 reality was learned many years ago that you know the probiotics do they help? Eh, yeah, a, a bit, but you know they're not magical. Well, we were giving them in the millions, and what research proved was that no, we need them in the billions. the 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 microbiome of the human weighs five pounds. Millions aren't enough. We need billions, and so uh, at first those were only available by prescription. Of course, the pharmaceuticals are going to get their their take. Uh, but now there are over-the-counter products you can get for, for people that are non-prescription. Do your research and, and look around for those um, because uh, you want a product in the billions. You also want a good quality product that that actually isn't bogus because the FDA is not really taking a look at those. Uh, so there's a lot of crap product out there. So same thing applies to dogs and cats. Now, their microbiome may not weigh, you know, two kilograms or five pounds, but they, it, it, to my knowledge, it, it hasn't been determined what the exact quant quantification of, of the mass index of what the dog and cat microbiome, you know, consists of. But I, w I would say it's it's maybe not that of a person because our guts are much longer. But you know, I would say at just judging on the the gut size, you figure four to six hours for full di digestion for most uh, dogs and cats. Our digestive cycle is 24 hours, so I say maybe divide that by four. You're looking at half a kilogram of of body mass, likely. You know, is, is what we're looking at for uh, your average dog and cat's microbiome. That's still a lot. You know, that translates to a pound and a half, and it's probably even bigger for like our large and giant breed dogs. So um, I would say the billions still apply. And there's, there's very few products that offer probiotic in the billions. You know, you look at even some of the stuff made by some of the uh, 
more reputable veterinary uh, nutraceutical companies and and they're 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 doing product in, in the millions and it's just not good enough there is one product uh and honestly it's the only one i'm aware of right now there might be others but the only one i'm aware of made by a company called nutramax nutramax is known for a lot of great supplements they make a supplement called denimarin that's great for liver health liver and gallbladder health uh they make a product called um Dasaquin, that's a great product for joint health. And I'm not trying to be a cheerleader for Nutramax. They're just a great company. And I, I make that recommendation medically all the time. And, and you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I sell very little product in my office. I keep like skeleton inventory because I hate the retail business. So I'm sending people to Chewy or 100 Pet Meds. I just don't care about retail. I hate retail, actually. I have to track it. I, you have to account for it. And it's just a pain in my rear. So, you know, there's no money for me in making the recommendation for Nutramax products. And so the the product that they've come up with, which is nothing short of magical, it's called ProViable. So P-R-O-V is in Victor, I-A-B-L-E, ProViable. Um, it is probiotic in the billions. And folks, if you have a dog with a troubled gut, a cat with a troubled gut, get them on it. Even if your dogs or cats don't have a troubled gut, get them on it. Because remember, 70 plus percent of the immune system resides in the gut. Thereby, if you keep a healthy gut, you're going to help to maintain a healthy immune system. You maintain a healthy immune system, you also maintain a healthy body in general. You can fight disease better. You can fight cancer better. All of these things flow in large measure from the gut. A healthy gut is essential to good health. And when the gut's not functioning well, other things go poorly. How about this? Mental health is important um, in terms of gut health. So what's been discovered in people is what's known as the gut-brain axis, that a healthy gut supports a healthy levels of serotonin in the brain. Serotonin is the neurotransmitter that is pulsing and coursing through our brain when we feel contentment, when we feel peace, when we feel safety. And when we feel fear and anxiety, it's the opposite. Cortisol goes up, stress hormone, serotonin goes down. So when we have a healthy gut, we facilitate that gut-brain axis. Uh, Purina, they identified five specific strains um, of probiotic that is directly tied to serotonin production in the brain or serotonin maintenance in the brain. They did a study, five-year study, and found these five strains and came up with a product called Common Care. Common Care is a probiotic specifically for stressed out dogs. The study they did it on, Labrador Retrievers. Why Labrador Retrievers? They are one of the most prone breeds to separation anxiety. I've had Labradors all my life. I love the breed. One of the downsides, one of the dark sides, they are prone to separation anxiety. They can destroy your home. They sometimes are perfectly potty trained, but they will void in the house. If you live in an apartment, they will bark and whine and cry and carry on and maybe get you evicted. True story. Almost happened to me while I was in vet school. I had I was broke, 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 broke in vet school. My senior year, I was in the clinic all the time, and I had to hire a dog walker uh, because my dog, after a certain period of time, would start carrying on. And people, you know, people in my apartment were complaining, and I was facing eviction. So I got a dog walker. And... Um, you know, I had to do it. I also, you know, felt badly that I, I had to leave my dog, you know, 
alone in the apartment for you know eight ten hours a day while I was at school. But you know that was my reality. I had, I had no choice. Um, wish I had common care back then. It works. <laughs> the study showed that ninety five percent of the dogs in the study improved with these five specific strains. Now, if you're looking for overall gut health, I wouldn't choose common care because common care is specifically for dogs that are stressed out. But you got a troubled gut, pro-viable. Go for the pro-viable. And I would imagine, and I don't know this for sure, I'm going to look into it, but pro-viable, it you know, may actually have those strains in it. If it's got probiotic in the billions, I would imagine that it includes those five strains. So maybe you're even covering those with pro-viable. But at any rate, probiotics, probiotics, probiotics. That's a great starting point. Okay, number two. You want to inoculate your dog and potentially your cat with some fiber. Uh, fiber is very important for gut health. Again, they are omnivorous. They, we made them more like us. To some degree, we did that to cats. Now, cats are, they lean more towards carnivore as far as their overall physiology, but they do need a certain amount of, of fiber in their diet to facilitate gut health. Ones with poor guts need even more. Uh, cats are prone to constipation. Uh, we, we, we actually call there's a condition we actually call obstipation in cats. We, we combine the words obstructive constipation to obstipation because they literally come in and they're obstructed because they are so backed up. That happens to some cats, especially Manx cats, the ones with the little stubby tails that they're born with, the little bobtails. Something about that bobtail also contributes to poor neurological, neurologically induced contraction of the hind gut. And so the, the, the feces just sits in there because they're not contracting and moving it along effectively. What, what does the colon do? Its main job is to recover water from the digestive process. It never stops doing that as long as the feces is there. So the longer it sits there during constipation, the more it's pulling water out of it, the more it makes it hard as a rock, the less likely it is to contract out of there. So it's a vicious cycle. So cats need fiber. And if they have constipation issues, if they have loose stools, there is a product uh, called Vetasil. It's made by a company called, I believe it is Zoetis. No, no, pardon, Verbac. Verbac makes it. Um, you can, it's odorless and tasteless. You can, op- for, for cats, you just open up the, the capsule and sprinkle it in the food. They don't taste it. They don't smell it. So you got a finicky-ish cat. It shouldn't bother them. In dogs, you just want, I, I, I do, uh, do Vetasil with my Labrador Retriever, and I just pop the capsules in her bowl, and because they're odorless, tasteless, she just eats them right up. That dog would eat anything you throw at her, actually. So that's another benefit of labs. They eat anything that's bad and good. They're easy to medicate. That's one of the good aspects of it. Um, but yeah, Vetasil is basically, it's Metamucil for, for dogs and cats. It is um, a great fiber supplement. It's essentially psyllium. Metamucil is psyllium. And psyllium comes from the husk of the plant. And what, what it works by creating a, a thick paste in the gut. So as it makes that paste, it forms bulk. So one of the reasons I give Metamucil, not Metamucil, Vetasil to my Labrador, she's prone to getting her anal glands filling up. So by giving her the Vetasil, um, I don't have to express her anal glands as often because it facilitates the natural expression of the anal glands, what's supposed to happen by bulking up that stool. It's been very effective. I used to have to squeeze them out once every three weeks. Now it's like once every three, four months. 
Uh, so it's been very effective in that. And it's made her stools just beautiful. Not that, you know, I sit and celebrate a beautiful poop. But, you know, it's nice to see a healthy stool on a daily basis, except that once or twice a week that she gets into something stupid. Um, it also is very good for cats as well. So loose stools, constipation, um, Vetasil. It's spelled V-E-T-A-S-Y-L. And in dogs, if you want to give them maybe a little bit of a treat, um, another effective strategy is adding canned pumpkin to their food. Cats, you can do this. Some cats will eat the pumpkin, um, but some won't. It really depends on the cat. Um, I have a pet owner that, you know, she, um, she her cat's prone to constipation and, you know, she puts she puts a half teaspoon of uh, pumpkin in the food every day and the cat just loves it. And when she doesn't do it, like if she forgot to get uh, pumpkin uh, at the grocery store, she looks down at her bowl and kind of looks it up at her like, uh, where's the pumpkin? So the, that her cat really likes it and she's a she's a rag doll. So she's a purebred cat. Um, she she got so constipated one time it was almost life threatening. Uh, so so we were very careful with her. But yeah, she uses pumpkin uh, on her cat. So you can try it with your cat. Um, generally, you want to do about a half teaspoon for every 10 pounds of body weight. And you want to do that um, once a day in the food. Um, and that's another strategy. And dogs, oh my God, dogs love pumpkin. Don't overdo the pumpkin though. You get overzealous with pumpkin, it can, it can irritate the bowel and go the other way and you get diarrhea. So you got to be careful to not overdo it. About a half teaspoon per 10 pounds of body weight. Um, and that's that's method... Uh, that I say, I think we're on topic number three. So probiotic uh, fiber in the form of Vetasil or pumpkin. And we're going to talk about the last thing. Um, If we're still not having a healthy gut despite these issues or or these measures, the last thing I would try is a legitimate hypoallergenic diet. Um, And and a real real hypoallergenic diet, not, not some limited ingredient garbage that you know, has a good marketing department, but really is providing a crap food. Um, I mean, talk to your veterinarian about a good hypoallergenic diet. Yes, it will be grain-free, but it will have components to it that won't make your animal fat and will be truly hypoallergenic. The ones that I like the most are hydrolyzed protein diets. So really, what is it about certain proteins that cause allergy? And, and, And let's say occasionally grain. Uh, certain grains. Well, it's not the grain, right? It's a macro protein within the grain. Uh, the biggest offender on that one would be gluten. Gluten can trigger allergy. Um, and that's present in certain grains. Uh, wheat gluten is probably the biggest of all the glutens. And so it's the, it's the size of the protein that's problematic. Um, and again, I'm going to say again, don't be thinking your dog's got a gluten allergy. It's more likely chicken, beef, turkey, animal source protein, because those also are macro proteins. And so the size of the protein is what's triggering the allergy because that protein's got to be broken down into smaller chains called peptides for absorption in the gut. Those peptides are repackaged and then put into metabolic processes and tissue building and and utilized. If the, the, the big proteins come in, it reacts with certain animals. It reacts with certain people. So by hydrolyzing the protein, by feeding that protein already broken down, we facilitate better digestion, we facilitate less inflammation, and we can greatly help a lot of these animals with irritable bowel and inflammatory bowel disease. And so give that a try. Um, the ones that I like, uh, so the, the two main 
prescription level diets that are out there that do the most research and been around the longest, Royal Canaan and Hills. Uh, on the Hill side is ZD. ZD has been around quite a long time. Z slash D, so it's hydrolyzed protein diet. And then on the um, Royal Canaan side, they have HP, Royal Canaan HP. It's, it stands for hydrolyzed protein. That's all that's available right now, but they had a fantastic one that was called Ultamino. I say had, it's kind of a past tense. It's been on a, like a year-long back order. I don't know what's going on there, but it's an indefinite back order. They're not telling us any, anything about when it might come back, but here's why Ultamino was amazing. It was so minimally inflammatory because it, it didn't just break down the proteins to the individual peptides. It broke them down further into the individual amino acids. So here's how protein works. The base molecule of the protein is called an amino acid. Amino acids bind together to form peptides. Peptides bind together to form the macromolecule protein. So when you break down the protein to its most basic building block, you're getting the animal the protein that it needs, but providing it in its most basic form. And it causes no inflammation, which is it's amazing. So if Royal Canin Ultimino ever comes back online, that's where I would go. But until then, Royal Canin HP and Hills ZD. Are, are the top choices there of fragilized protein. In fact, I think they're the only choices. Um, but that would be the last thing I would add in there. And then we have to resort to then, you know, some prescription medications. If, if we're doing all that, so probiotic, good source of fiber, hypoallergenic diet um, in the hydrolyzed protein form or uh, Ultimino, if you're doing all that, we're still having gut problems, then you know we, we probably have to start breaking out some medications. And what they're going to be is going to de- really depend on what the condition is. We generally like to um, do mucosal biopsies via endoscopy. So yes, we do endoscopy in pets. We do colonoscopies and we do upper GI endoscopies, just like we do in people. Um, it's it, the process is a little bit different, but it, it's the same result. You drive a camera around there, you look at the condition of the mu- mucus lining of the gut, and you take some biopsies, and then you get a uh, a diagnosis, uh, and then what, whatever that diagnosis tells the veterinarian, that will determine what medications are going to be necessary. Um, you know, you certainly try to circumvent the need for meds, but you know what? It, it's not always in the cards for that particular pet. I have um, a family member who's got Crohn's disease. Uh, she, he needs to be on. Uh, uh, what's called a biologic? It's called uh, Remicade. You know, it's 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 nothing to to trifle with. It's pretty serious medication, but without it, he's just deathly ill. Even on it, he still struggles and actually has to go on a steroid on top of that, sometimes for months at a time to to stay regulated. Um, so so the reality is that we have to break out medication sometimes. There's but we we try these other measures, and then you know go to that level. Uh, if and when we have to. So that's gut health in a nutshell, ladies and gentlemen. Um, A little bit longer of an episode than I I try to put out there. Hopefully I didn't lose your attention. Hopefully you're still with me. But uh, keep those emails coming. I just, uh, I love it when listener emails come. And um, today was a great one. So Emily, thank you for your contribution. I will talk to you next Thursday, everybody. Have a great rest of your day. Taking charge of your future starts with taking the first steps. And saving up to $30 a month on Cox Internet with the Affordable Connectivity Program makes those steps easy to take. Whether they bring you to click upload on your first short film or join now for an online book club. 
Applying is easy. See if you qualify at cox.com slash ACP. Non-transferable one per household application and eligibility decisions are made by the FCC. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.